Hello, thank you for listening to an episode of our Valiant Voices conversation series. I am Cheryl Thomas, the founder and executive director of Global Rights for Women, a nonprofit located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, working to end gender-based violence around the world. This episode was recorded on a Zoom webinar. If you would like to attend the next one live, please visit our website, globalrightsforwomen.org front slash Valiant Voices to sign up. Thank you and enjoy listening to our series. My name is Patricia Cumbie and I welcome you from Global Rights for Women. I would like to start us off today with a land acknowledgement. We gratefully acknowledge the indigenous people of the lands we are on today. Even though we are meeting in a virtual space, it is important for us to recognize that we have and continue to benefit from the theft and occupation of this land since even before the United States was formed as a nation. Global Rights for Women is located in Minneapolis, Minnesota with staff throughout Minnesota and acknowledges we are on Dakota and Anishinaabe land. We recognize the historic discrimination and violence that have been inflicted upon indigenous people globally. Additionally, we understand the treatment of indigenous women is a byproduct of colonialism, racism, and misogyny that has perpetuated the continued sexual abuse, disappearance, and murder of Indigenous women here in Minnesota and in many places around the world. The University of Delaware occupies lands vital to the web of life for Lenny Lenape and Nantikoke, who share their ancestry, history, and future in this region. European colonizers and later the United States forced members of these groups westward and northward where they formed nations in present day Oklahoma, Wisconsin, Ontario, Canada. Others never left or returned from exile when they could. Their continuing tribal communities steward the ecologies and traditions of this region today. So please join us now in a moment of reflection to acknowledge the harm of the past and present, and to consider how you can join the effort to dismantle the continued oppression of indigenous communities and restore justice. And also since people are joining here from around the world at this time, if you would like to put into the chat, the land that you are acknowledging, we would welcome and encourage that as well. So thank you all so much for coming to Global Rights for Women's Conversation Series, Valiant Voices. I'm Patricia Cumby, pronouns she, her, and I will be introducing our guests and today's moderator, Laura Williams. I am the communications manager for Global Rights for Women, an organization with the mission to end domestic and sexual violence around the world. We are thrilled, so thrilled, to be partnering today with the Center for the Study and Prevention of Gender-Based Violence at the University of Delaware for this important conversation about changing the dynamics of campus sexual assault. And so you know, Valiant Voices is a conversation series created by Global Rights for Women that features the human rights advocates and survivors who are addressing injustice and disrupting oppressive systems that cause harm. These are the stories of powerful leaders creating change in their communities and around the world. We're so excited about today. So we're live streaming on Facebook today and welcome your comments there or in the Q&A section on Zoom. After the conversation, we will be sending out a link with the recording and if you need a certificate of attendance, please contact Sophia Morissette at smorissette at grwomen.org. And we have that information in the chat for you as well. And now I am thrilled to turn it over to Angie Hattery for a few words. 
Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Angie Hattery. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a professor of women and gender studies and co-director along with Professor Jennifer Naccarelli of the Center for the Study and Prevention of Gender-Based Violence at the University of Delaware. We are grateful and excited for this collaboration with our friends and colleagues at Global Rights for Women. I'd like to give a special welcome to our University of Delaware colleagues in development and alumni relations who are attending this event as a team. They're hosting a live watch party for this event and will host a follow-up discussion about the ways their staff can be allies in the efforts to reduce gender-based violence on campus, in our larger community, and wherever blue hens live and work. So thank you. Thank you so much, Angie. And now I am just beyond pleased and delighted to introduce our panelists and moderator to you. Nancy Chai Cantalupo is an assistant professor at Wayne State Law. She has 25 plus years of anti-campus anti sexual violence work as a researcher, campus administrator, advocate, attorney, and policymaker. She has published in the Wake Forest Law Review, Harvard Journal of Law and Gender, Yale Law Journal Forum, and in op-eds for the New York Times, Time, USA Today, and Washington Post. Her pro bono work includes consulting with the Obama-Biden administration's White House Task Force to protect students from sexual assault, participating in a US Senate roundtable, and serving on the 2013 Violence Against Women Act Negotiating Rulemaking Committee. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today, Nancy. And now I'd like to introduce you to Sage Carson, pronouns she, her. Sage is an anti-sexual violence and gender justice organizer. She is the former manager of Know Your Nine, a national campaign working to end sexual violence in education through survivor organizing. She has worked nationally to pass proactive legislation on campus sexual violence and abortion access. She has written for the publications, including Time, The Washington Post, Vice, and The Nation and is the author co-author of balancing the scales student survivors interests and the matthews analysis she is based in washington dc and welcome sage and now i'm pleased to welcome anisa cartagena who is a graduating senior at delaware state university who is majoring in political science her goal is to one day become a prosecutor and later create a recreation center for survivors of domestic and sexual violence. She is a survivor and advocate at the DSU campus. She is also the founder and president of Gracefully Igniting Voices Everywhere, an organization created by survivors for survivors that is engaged in educational services surrounding these topics. Welcome, Anissa. Thank you for sharing your voice today. And uh, I'm also thrilled to introduce our um, next guest, and that's Kiera Spann, a junior at the University of Delaware studying political science. Here she led a series of protests on campus after women's violence went unnoticed by the university. She has a social media following of 750 plus people where she posts about politics, women's issues and college life. She worked on the 2020 Biden campaign and works for Gen Z for Change, which has been featured on ABC and BS Teen Vogue and the New York Times. She hopes to work for a nonprofit or the government fighting for social justice, women's issues, and LGBTQ issues. Welcome. And I am thrilled to introduce to you my colleague, Laura Williams, who will be today's moderator. And Laura is the Global Rights for Women's Director of Systems Advocacy. She co-founded the Sexual Violence Justice Institute, where she led a team that worked across the United States to equip leaders to coordinate and reform their responses to sexual violence. 
Over 30 years ago, she joined other students on her campus to raise awareness about the myths and attitudes surrounding sexual assault, which later led to over a decade in work in direct services with survivors and a call into systems change, which has been the focus of her work for the last 20 years. She has written, consulted, and trained extensively on the multi-agency, multidisciplinary response to sexual assault and draws upon her direct experience with survivors, individual responders, and sexual assault teams to inform her work. And thank you all so much for joining us. And I hope you all really took in just the amazing level of um, publications and thought leadership happening with this group. So I am super excited to turn over our conversation now to Laura. Thanks so much, Pat. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it's just, it's just really impressive this August group. And I know there are members. Uh, uh, as some people reached out to me, I know there are participants who are also making change wherever they're located all around the world. So, I too look forward to a really good conversation. And particularly during the Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and in recognition of the 50th anniversary of Title IX, it is a, it is a good time to be together. Um, I've been asked to take just a moment to set some context for all of us. I'll be focusing on data from the United States, but Global Rights for Women reaches around the world. And so if you're in another portion of the world, I do invite you um, to add comments in the chat about what might seem similar or different um, as you think about uh, campus sexual assault in your context. So here's some of what we know. We know that sexual violence is way too common and a crime with the highest prevalence for young women under 25. The, the majority of male victims also have their first experience with contact sexual violence before the age of 25. We know that 19% of college women will be sexually assaulted during their time at college, most often by men they know and trust. We know that five to 6% of men will be sexually assaulted. Now, these numbers are often hard for us to imagine, so I want to take you on a little journey just to put this in um, our minds uh, and the totality of it. I want you to think about a crisp fall Saturday afternoon. Let's imagine football stadiums across the United States filled with fans ready to watch a game. More specifically, let's imagine the top 21 largest football stadiums in the United States filled to their capacity. That would include Michigan, Penn State, Ohio State, Texas A&M, Tennessee, Louisiana, the Texas Longhorns Stadium, Alabama, Georgia, and the Cotton Bowl Stadium in Dallas, Texas. Those are the top 10. Now add the Rose Bowl in Pasadena and the stadiums in Florida, Auburn, Nebraska, Clemson, Madison, Columbia, Norman, Oklahoma, Notre Dame, Los Angeles, and four NFL stadiums plus 70% of the seats filled in Lumen Field where the Seattle Seahawks play. That would be the number of sexual, uh, number of survivors of contact sexual assault in college based on a recent enrollment statistic. 80% of the people filling those stadiums would be young women. Now, as the case with many phenomena, it is difficult to get extensive data on people with marginalized identities, but the data from the CDC confirm what we on the ground and people working in these communities, our panelists know anecdotally, that the rates of violence are significantly higher among BIPOC and people of color, LGBTQI, people with disabilities, undocumented immigrants, and those with other marginalized identities and intersecting identities. So now when you are imagining those stadiums, really please consider that the people with marginalized identities will be filling more seats than they represent in the population. It is an outsized impact. They are disproportionately impacted by sexual violence. Now, if you work on a college campus, as I know some of you do, you may want to imagine the survivors, instead of football, you may want to imagine the survivors that will be crossing the stage next month to become your alumni. At 19% of the women on your college campus, that number is likely to be in the hundreds. Now, if they found the support and safety they needed to stay in school and to make it to graduation. If they didn't receive the support they needed or needed to downgrade their dreams, change their career paths, or were pushed out and didn't graduate, 
think about what your communication might be with them in the future. How do they uh, show up in your alumni connections? And maybe some of you really know these survivors and don't have to imagine. Now that's the magnitude of the problem. And at the individual campus community and national level, this creates real harm with significant costs and very little accountability for those doing the harm. When our systems fail to identify and hold accountable one offender, there's an average of six victims and many, many lives that are impacted by that victimization. I hope you'll hear more from our panelists today about those impacts. Now, lest we think the problem is new, it is not. I've been working with other alums to collect stories about sexual assault in my own college's history. At a recent reunion, an alumna from the 1960s learned I was working on the project and asked if she could add her story. This woman who later built her own career in higher ed distinctly remembered that she and some of her classmates identified a perpetrator on campus when she was a student there and really tried to figure out who to talk to and what to do. It, they had no idea. And in the absence of institutional processes, they decided they just had to look out for each other. She told me this story 50 years after she had been on campus. And it reminded me of some of the actions my classmates and I took up after took up for responsibility for survivors during my college years, also in the face, unfortunately, of an inadequate institutional response. For too long, the focus has been on what women or potential victims need to do differently to protect themselves or how we can help each other in order to avoid being sexually assaulted. But after decades of work to identify the problem and prevent it, we're coming to see more and more how important the role of higher ed, the role of the higher ed institution is in setting a climate of safety and support for victims and accountability for perpetrators. Today, we're focused on this more systemic and institutional response to campus sexual assault and the role of activism, public awareness, and law to end sexual assault in campus. Um, and the gender bias that enables. That brings us to uh, the insights of our panelists today, and I couldn't be more pleased. I'd like to start with you, Nancy. Um, you have worked to combat sexual harassment and gender-based violence for over 27 years, beginning as a student activist and a campus administrator, and now as a lawyer and legal scholar. The national picture has changed drastically since you started, I imagine, uh, and in my own experience. What kinds of changes have you seen over that time and what do you think accounts for those changes? Thank you so much. Um, and, and thanks to uh, Angie and all of the other folks who have enabled my uh, participation today. Um, so I, I, I wanna focus on what I think is the biggest and most important change. Um, and that is that beginning in the 2010s, student activists and their allies began to understand not only that sexual harassment and gender-based violence in education are, is a national problem or are national problems, but that school mishandling of this harassment and violence is a national problem. Um, so, so even more critically, during that decade and, and a little of the decade before it, there was increasing recognition that these national problems also have national solutions, um, at, at least potential solutions. So namely in the form of federal statutes and especially the federal civil rights law, Title IX. Um, so in my days as a student activist in the mid-1990s, uh, there were protests and often sustained and good interventions and changes in reaction or in response to those protests. Um, and particularly this was focused on sexual violence and sexual assault. Uh, but these were limited to a single institution and we made few, if any, connections between what was wrong on our own campuses to what was wrong on others' campuses. And connected with that, we were largely unaware of the federal statutes that applied to the issues that we were protesting and therefore never used them. Um, and, and we were not able to leverage their power in any way, um, even in our campus specific protests. 
And that's what this generation of activists have done that is so transformative. They've connected with each other across campuses and across the country and started to see the patterns um, that they could see that what was happening on one campus was happening on many campuses, um, virtually on all campuses. And what enabled those connections is primarily social media, um, which allowed activists from different campuses to see the commonalities and to start to talk with each other. Um, and that then led very quickly to organizing uh, across campuses uh, to national protest movements and other coordinated activities. Um, but even more than that, it connected current student activists with activists who had come before them um, and to the massive population, as Laura, you just referred to, of older survivors who had experienced sexual harassment and gender-based violence while, while they were in school. Um, and many of us, by virtue of age, profession, and access to various more expensive platforms or other resources, were able to and eager to join the newest generation of activists and to amplify their voices and demands. Um, and as a result, you know, there were multiple documentary films. I mean, what we saw in the 2010s was multiple documentary films, major newspapers and broadcast news sources, you know, writing front page articles um, on, the, on this topic. Uh, researchers and scholars, you know, sort of, Many, many researchers and scholars had been working in this space for a long time. Um, in some ways, we're, we're sort of the oldest and the longest uh, running group um, that has kept paying attention to this and kept getting sort of publicly published and noticed for our work in this area. Um, but we all of a sudden had, had much bigger platforms and and platforms that everyone was actually paying attention to. Um, I mean, before the 2010s, I used to describe my experience speaking as a researcher and a scholar to audiences about Title IX and about sexual harassment and gender-based violence in education as speaking into the void right? I, I would just talk about this stuff and I would just get sort of silence back, you know. Um, and then after the after I finished speaking and the program was over, um, a bunch of women of various generations would come up and disclose to me um, their own experiences with having survived this harassment and violence. So, you know, I mean, that was a very different world um, from the world that the student activists of the of this this generation of student activists really um, sort of created and enabled um, through their their amazing organizing work, um, and you know, and they even got the attention of national lawmakers, right, both in Congress and in the White House, and every one of us were eager to work with them to you know, really try to finally make a meaningful difference in this area. Um, so I, I'm, a, I'm a total Luddite um, when it comes to media and, you know, social media. I'm not on any social media platform. So I'm gonna let others talk about the specifics um, about how social media really made a change here. I can appreciate it, but I don't know how it works. Um, uh, but, you know, I do want to use my perspective and, and say, make my last comments um, from the perspective of being a lawyer and a law professor. Um, and, and in that, I want to go back to the issue of patterns, right? So, so the fact that the student activists began to see patterns in what was happening school to school, that's why what, that, that was the transformative 
thing that happened, right? And, and that's because when we can identify patterns like these, we know that we're, deal that we're dealing with something that is systemic and structural, right? It is about widespread discrimination and inequality. It's not about a few bad apples um, and, or, or in this case, a few sexual predators who need to be checked. Um, I mean, there are certainly predators. <laughs> we definitely know that. Um, but a major factor, perhaps the major factor um, in their predation is that they are surrounded by enablers. Um, and, and those enablers are both in individual and institutional. Um, and, and the individual and institutional often go together. Um, so effective solutions are, are not only going to just focus on the bad apples or on the predators, they also have to address the enablers, again, both individual and institutional. And in other words, what that means is that effective solutions must view and seek to intervene in these problems as a matter of discrimination and inequality. And to do that, they have to develop systemic and structural interventions. So, so that's why Title IX and other civil rights laws are so important um, because they target discrimination and inequality and they pay attention to patterns. Um, and they seek to dismantle structures and systems that will prevent uh, the discrimination, that will um, lead to discrimination and, uh, and, and they want to create systems that are going to prevent discrimination and increase equality. So, you know, this is very different from the criminal law and other approaches that focus on disciplining the perpetrators. Um, these are bad apples approaches and they're doomed to be inadequate if we use them exclusively or even primarily to address the problem. So I'll, I'll leave it there and I look forward to the rest of the discussion and my co-panelists comments. Thank you so much, Nancy. What a great uh, foundation to understand how the past connects to uh, the um, activism and the legal changes in the institutional work that is, is being pushed to the forefront now and why it's so critical. I do believe our other panelists will add texture and um, context uh, for that as well. So thank you so much for launching us. Anissa, I'd like to turn to you now, if I may. Um, Thank you for your courage in speaking up and sharing your experience with sexual assault as a freshman student at Delaware State. One of the things we hear so often from survivors is how their experiences are disbelieved or minimized and perpetrators are not held accountable to the enabling as Nancy's uh, talked about. And survivors often say they feel harmed by the people and systems that are precisely supposed to be helping. Given your experience, uh, what is it you would like to see changed about the process of reaching out for help and, and speaking to um, uh, authorities of any kind in the institution or in the community? And um, what would justice look like for you if you care to take that up? It's a pretty big question. <laughs> Thank you so much for that question, Laura. Um, I yeah. can say one thing I have noticed just as a survivor and also I'm doing advocacy work on my campus is the idea of a perfect victim. That is something mm -hmm. that we run into a lot on this campus. Um, we are a predominantly, well, we are a historically black college university um, and that kind of plays a role as well as the different things that we face on image, right? We don't really have the ability to be victims, especially some of our um, people of color on campus, our black and brown community we face a lot of issues with sexual assault. One thing that we have faced, and one thing I can say that I have faced personally was when I first reported my assault, there were so many questions of like, well, what were you wearing? What were you doing that contributed to this to occur? Were you drinking? Why were you drinking? Why did you go over there? Why did you believe them? Why were you friends with them? And it was a lot of blame placed on me of like, why didn't I take the steps that I needed to take to keep myself protected rather than hold somebody accountable for doing something that they shouldn't have been doing. Um, I can say I faced a lot of backlash when it came to speaking up and, and begging for accountability. 
And then I realized, um, I, I realized very hard that Delaware State University with most colleges is, is a business, right? And when something gets thrown, like a wrench gets thrown in that business and you try to hold people accountable, especially people who may have, who may be, you know, student government officials, student government association officials, or people who may be on like full scholarships that benefit the school, we realize the roles that they may have play and how they are holded accountable. I can also say that um, another issue that we have been facing is just just to have a survivor believed in the resources, necessary resources that come in effect. You know, there are survivors right now who I'm working with who haven't been told what resources they can get, who haven't been told their rights, who, you know, are in cases that have been open for far too long and are still in classes with their perpetrators or are still living in the same buildings as their perpetrators and they're being told that they can't get assistance at the moment. You know, there are some survivors that honestly lose their jobs over this. You know, I faced that. I was actually homeless for a couple of years because of my situation. You know, I had a very unstable housing situation because of that. Um, I faced tons of backlash when it came to the reporting process. I would report every single harassment that I have faced at my university. And every time I went to the police department, I was faced with well, there's nothing we can do about it. I was constantly not heard. I wasn't believed. Anytime I would file a report, it was kind of like, again, you're back rather than like assisting me with the issue that was on hand. Um, I was harassed by my perpetrator since 2019 ongoing. Um, I think the last time I was probably harassed by him was probably a month ago. So as we can see, that's a strong three years that this has been occurring and I still haven't been getting any assistance with the issues. I can say um, my idea of justice definitely changed over time. In the beginning, I thought justice meant prison time for him. Mm -hmm. I thought justice meant um, getting kicked out of school. I thought justice meant, you know, being able to, you know, get the retribution that I feel like I deserve because of what happened to me. And it took a very long time for me to realize that when it came to justice, um, my idea of justice now is just to be left alone. I would want nothing more to just wake up in the morning and not have to think about my perpetrator, not have to worry or look over my shoulder. You know, justice for me looks like being able to update my LinkedIn so I can, you know, be able to say about my current accomplishments or where I'm working at, you know, for other opportunities. Unfortunately, the reality I currently live in is that that's impossible right now. Because anytime I make an update to my current life and present time, I risk facing backlash over that, not only by my perpetrator, but by my university as well. Um, as president of my organization, we face tons of backlash all the time by our university and our um, authority figures here when we attempt to ask for help, when we attempt to, you know, get survivors some type of justice, right? Um, we have just faced some issues recently, I would say in the past couple of weeks with um, being able to stay at an organization. We are a safe space for all survivors to come forth and say, you know, this happened to me. I'm trying to figure out what I can do. I'm trying to figure out what are my options. And we face a lot of issues with um, Delaware State University and with the authority figures there who are very bent on <laughs> preventing this organization from thriving and preventing survivors from knowing their rights. Um, I would, if I really had to just end it in one sentence or more, I would say justice right now looks for me to be graduating. It looks for the organization to keep doing what it is doing. It is so much bigger than just me and my voice. And we are an organization of over 50 plus members and we are growing. You know, justice looks like us being able to hold our university and our public figures accountable while also um, keeping that part of ourselves, you know? Like I, I definitely wanna stay true to who we are and to the, to the things that we do. So yeah. Hmm. Thank you, Anissa. Um, thank you for helping us understand and bringing into this space and this conversation some of the very tangible, real impacts um, through your own experience and then through your activism. I'm really struck by the comment about, you know, no one perfect victim. And yet um, college campuses, I would say almost any organization that runs as a business, right? And how difficult it is for them to switch gears and and why it becomes so easy to say well if you didn't have a messy problem you know we would be fine right and and leaving it to 
survivors themselves or um, students who, much like the story I gave of 50 years ago to try and organize rather than take the institutional steps they need to take. And so it's, I, I think that um, is a powerful lead into Kira, um, kind of your role in sort of pulling it away from that individual survivor's responsibility to either, you know, say the right things or not have more problems or uh, fix the problem, right? Um, and instead, you're using social media to bring attention to gender-based violence, especially on college campuses. Uh, what motivated you to use your social media platform for changing culture? Um, much like Nancy set us up to understand the, this pattern um, that, that's not just one survivor or a few bad apples or on one college campus. So, so what motivated you to use your social media platform for changing culture and to end uh, and, and, and activism to end gender-based violence on campus. How do you think others, the rest of us, Luddites as we may be, <laughs> might use uh, social media to spur change um, and change gender norms that are really harmful to women and girls? Yeah, well, first off, thank you so much and huge thank you to all the panelists that I'm here with. I'm honored to be amongst amazing women. Um, but so like a little bit of background to me, I'm a junior at Delaware studying political science. I've always been very passionate about social justice. It's just always been a very big part of my life, especially once I got to college and started learning about it in more depth. And I worked on the campaign in 2020 for Biden and did a lot of stuff on social media and grew a very large platform of over 750,000 people, which is still crazy to think about um, on social media by talking about these issues and specifically women's rights and LGBTQ plus rights on social media. And I started working with a group called Gen Z for Change, which is a group of a bunch of creators from all across the country. And we have a couple people across the world as well who all had platforms on social media and we came together and started focusing on these social issues all over the country and promoting all of those things on a social media platform where millions and millions of people would see these things. So that's a little bit of background about me. But when I came here, this was my first semester, I transferred into Delaware this fall. And within a month of being here, we heard about a student who was brutally um, had a domestic violence incident by another University of Delaware student right off campus. And the only way that the rest of the students found out about it is because we saw a news article. One news article was posted about this incident and the university never spoke up about the issue at all. Like we didn't hear anything from the university and students in general were mad. Like everyone was so upset that this happened right off campus. It happened between two University of Delaware students. We heard nothing about it. So a bunch of people decided to come together and hold a protest outside of the house where that boy who committed the assault lived. Um, there was only about 40 people that showed up, but we brought signs and we faced a lot of backlash on the streets, similar to what Anissa said, like so much backlash, um, but people like laughing and like saying, what are you doing? What's the point of this? And at that point, I pretty much decided that I was gonna post about this on social media because activism alone at this point in person really wasn't enough. Um, so I went home that night, we formed um, a group chat of students who were planning another protest, and I posted a TikTok on my social media page, which already had a following behind it, and within 24 hours, it had about 7 million views, and we received a lot of national attention. I did an article for Rolling Stone about the situation, ABC, NBC, Fox, like all of these huge news organizations were speaking about this issue nationally and putting Delaware in the spotlight. And University of Delaware, finally, under all that pressure, spoke out. I spoke to the vice president and the president of the university with another, with all, all these amazing student leaders. We all spoke to him together and talked about what the university can do to help students. And through this, um, we were able to form a student-led group uh, called Coalition of Change, which we're still working on doing work with them. And it is basically all about using social media to inspire change on college campuses. Um, so what can everyone do? I think we all know that social media is kind of the new future, right? In the way that we receive our news, especially people in my um, generation and like college age students, like we get all of our news from social media. Like that's how we found out about this assault in the first place. That's how nationally people found out about this issue. But 
it's not just an issue with Delaware, it's an issue everywhere. So I had people reaching out to me from colleges in California and Minnesota, like everywhere about issues that they had on their campus similarly that the university did nothing to respond. So on Delaware's campus, we saw like a smaller version of the Me Too movement happened. As soon as this student was able to come out about the story and realize that people were supporting them, a bunch of other students came forward as well. And it was really powerful to be there and see that. But once it got national attention, that happened everywhere, which was really amazing to see. But I think the reason I posted about it is because I feel like as someone with a platform, it's my obligation to speak up. Like if I have that, I can't stay silent about an issue like this. And I feel like the number one piece of advice I have for people is post about it. I think a reason it gets pushed under the table so often is because people are nervous about speaking up about the issue, but because of all of the background and all of this that's happening right now, people are becoming a lot more um, supportive. There's like, there, people don't realize how big of a support group there is behind you. And after the whole situation at Delaware, I was so inspired by all of the other students that were there to support and also share their stories. And it just became, in coming out of a community of hurt, it really became a community of love. And I think a really big part of that was all the attention we were able to give it on social media. So, yeah. Oh, thanks so much, Kira. That uh, so much I'm learning and in, in what you're sharing. I'm also gonna track time here. There may be some questions coming in for you. So I won't say much more now, but, um, but that image of amplifying and broadening so that those connections can be made and and then quite frankly can't be um, minimized or ignored right um, and such a powerful addition to then be uh, connected to the legal reforms that Nancy talked about that now uh, are available for activism thank you so much um, that's a great uh, segue Sage someone who's who's educated and organized, right? About the legal tools and, and organized on, on campus and, and so much more as we heard in your bio, but you started as a student activist at UD and identified that uh, a powerful tool for change for survivors was a legal uh, tool, Title IX. Can you talk about why you chose Title IX to organize around and what the future of the Title IX movement looks like for students? What have we learned and where do we need to go? Absolutely. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you all so much for welcoming me here today and to my fellow panelists. I've loved hearing from you all, learning from you all. Um, so first, I want to say that when I started as a student activist at the University of Delaware, there was like no organizing happening at UD. It was a very small, quiet space. And um, what's good about that and what's particular about Delaware is because it's so small that if you make noise, people are going to hear you, right? Like <laughs> it was very quick and easy for us to get connected to legislators to push back to mobilize students. And my personal experience is that um, after a student was harmed by the university, her advocate had reached out to organizers and, and we formed kind of a protest of, it started as why, what has the university done and failed us? What does the university need to move towards? How do we rally around that? But the event quickly turned into a survivor speak out where people shared their stories for hours. Um, and I remember the day of like me holding a megaphone and survivor after survivor after survivor coming and sharing their story. And they were all students that I had seen in my classes that I had seen in the lunchroom that I'd never talked to who were all standing up and talking about their own experiences of trauma. And I remember that day hearing from someone that they said, um, let me get a timer. Um, uh, that in that day, they said, I had no idea that what I experienced was sexual violence. I had always known it was wrong. I had always known that it hurt me. I had always known that it had limited my ability to show up on this campus as my full self, but I didn't have the words to describe it. Um, and so from there, we started organizing together with a, a small coalition of students. And this was uh, starting in about 2013, 2014, when the Title IX movement of student organizers was hitting its peak. And I was lucky enough to become connected with Dana and Alexandra at Know Your Nine, who were talking about ways to use our civil rights to back up the power of student organizing. And this is not to say that Title IX alone is this powerful force that makes change. <laughs> this is to say that Title IX was the backdrop and the strength to our movement that continued to push it forward when universities sh uh, shrugged responsibility. 
And so for us, that meant teaching students what their rights were, what was possible for them and what they could do and come to the table and then say, here is what you have to do. Here is what you have to make change on. Here's what you have to be aligned on. And here's how you are failing your students. Because me coming to our Title IX coordinator or our dean and saying, you should do this, wasn't doing much. They were focused on their bottom line. They were focused on fear of backlash from perpetrators, of donors. And what we could say instead is the law says you have to do these things. And that's what was happening across campuses. It's a, it's a large focus on what do schools have to do? How do they move in this way? But I think something that looking back on this now is so after graduation, I moved to DC and took over Know Your Nine, which is a national organizing platform where we work with students across the country to teach them how to be better organizers and also teach them how to make massive change in their state and their community and um, in the federal government. And what I have kind of seen over those past four years of being with Know Your Nine was a shift in one, an idea that Title IX was a space for justice. And it simply can't be that. And that is always really hard for folks to hear is that when we tell survivors what justice should look like for them, that, that accountability is justice or that punishment is justice, or that X, Y, and Z is justice, we curtail their ability to think of what do I need as an individual? What services do I need? What support do I need? What do I need to thrive and get back on my feet? And when I talk to survivors, um, we, we recently released a report called The Cost of Reporting. And we, we looked and talked to survivors about what would have made a change for you? What difference would have kept you in school, would make you experience something different than where you are right now? All they were saying is, if I had access to accommodations, if I had access to supportive measures, if I could go to the library and not have a panic attack because I'm fearing running into my abuser. Um, and that is where we see survivors really talking about what they need. But by conflating Title IX with justice, we saw folks run with the messaging of Title IX is about punishment. Title IX is about punishing individuals. It is about pushing people out of school. When in actuality, that is not at all what the civil right was really intended for. I like to think of the pieces around accountability with Title IX as um, one, it can be somewhat of a supportive measure of me not having to run into my abuser on campus is sure supportive to me as a person. But our schools all have their individual processes that they go through, their individual punishment processes, their individual things that they have on their own. And Title IX is meant to say, when you went through that process, could you engage in it freely? Could you get the support that you needed while doing it? Did you have a fair and equitable outcome? And if you don't, here's what needs to change. And I'm raising this because over the past four years, we saw the Trump administration at MRAs take Title IX chew it up and spit it back out into something that was entirely divulged from what we needed. And now when I talk to survivors, I hear them say, Title IX failed me. Title IX did this. And it's because we see schools adopting this idea of a civil right as this punishment process. And so students are thinking, when I go through this process, the only possible outcome for me is that my abuser gets punished or not. And if they don't get punished, I get nothing. And so to me, the future of this movement looks like one, us reimagining what we want from our schools and our communities, what this place looks like, what resources look like, what support looks like for students. And that's what our goal was with the cost of reporting was to show the ways that school are failing survivors, particularly because in my day, it was the hunting ground that was like the big conversational piece, but the hunting ground only focused on punishment. It didn't talk about what other support did I want that I didn't have access to. And that's what we were really hoping to drive in. So I would call on students and call our community to focus on what resources, what support would you want your school to provide to you? Because so many survivors also don't want punishment. That's not tangible for them. That's not something that they look for. And two, I think to reimagine our movement as deeply connected to the movement of other civil rights and other students justice organizing, particularly for students who are facing multiple marginalized identities, how are you supposed to go to your school and say, I am just facing discrimination because I am a woman. 
or I am just facing discrimination because of my race or because of my disability. For students across the, the, the country, those things are deeply interconnected with one another. And so our movements have to reflect that and be focused on how do these process meet every single student where they're at? How can they recognize the multitudes that they are facing to ensure that we meet survivors where we're at? Um, and so I think I really call on students and, and thought leaders in this to reimagine this as not just a focus on punishing perpetrators, but as a focus on how can we look across our movements to learn from one another, to build deeply connect with each other, and to focus entirely on what do the people that are impacted tell you that they need and what do they want? Because when we do that, we can reimagine a beautiful and amazing future that is so tangible and so touchable <laughs> to me, um, but often feels so out of touch for me. But I'll pause there because I know we're running low on time and, and pass it to folks for questions. Uh, thanks, Sage. We're actually going to, uh, Nancy, we don't have a lot of time, but I do want to sneak in a, a, a few moments. I see so many threads here. Um, we did get one question. Hopefully you can say just briefly, uh, there are some people joining from outside the U.S. We keep saying Title IX. What is it? <laughs> if you could, I think Sage framed that in the civil rights context, but if you could just say uh, something briefly about that. And then um, uh, maybe, I know it's really hard, but just so we have time for a few questions in just a few, a uh, couple of minutes, can you talk about your work um, as a, a lawyer in a recent settlement with the University of Michigan and the provision for requiring our campus coordinated response team and maybe even take up a little bit about what Sage is talking about, that those teams don't only need to focus on, you know, procedural findings of, of, of um, accountability or punishment, but can really uh, take up these questions about centralizing victims' needs and accommodations as well. Um, why was it important for you to, to incorporate a CCR in this settlement? And um, I know some other campuses sometimes have had them, sometimes they've gone away. What do you think uh, institutions should be thinking about with regard to that particular um, way of uh, identifying a path to the future? So I'll just say very briefly that um, Title IX is, uh, is the sexual harassment law uh, or the civil rights law that, that prohibits sexual harassment as a form of sex discrimination or gender discrimination. And it's, there, there's actually a new book out um, about the history of Title IX um, that's called 37 Words, because that is the length mm -hmm. of Title IX, um, of, uh, you know, of the, of the statutory language. And, um, and it's, so it's very simple. It just says that, um, you know, that educational programs that receive federal funds may not discriminate on the basis of sex, and um, and sexual harassment is has been recognized for decades as a form of sex discrimination, and you know, gender-based violence and sexual assault are sort of severe forms of sexual harassment, um, and also forms of gender discrimination. So, um, so that's, that's the brief, um, you know, sort of legal primer <laughs> on Title IX. Um, what I will say about CCRTs is that CCRTs are not necessarily connected to Title IX, but they are a very effective way of, of accomplishing the goals that Title IX attempts to, you know, attempts to get institutions to focus on. Um, and, and, and they're really, you know, I could go on and on and in fact have gone on and on and we don't have time for that. So I'm just going to say very briefly that CCRTs are, they're very effective because they're, they take a kind of comprehensive approach, right? They, they pull in people from all over the campus constituencies that that have multiple constituencies that have a stake um, in you know addressing this problem and and trying to prevent uh, this discrimination from happening and you know there are 
on campuses, there are people all over the campus who are interested and invested in, um, in you know, really addressing this problem. But they are often not, not only not included in what the institution is doing, but they are actively excluded from what the institution is doing. And um, instead, you know, the, the people who are making the decisions about what the institution is doing are in this sort of very exclusive group that is often uh, very much an echo chamber. Um, and, you know, and it's just, it's not effective. Um, so, so CCRTs are really important um, because they bring in a, a wider range of people who are really invested in the problem and you know, force institutions essentially to not be exclusive um, in the way that that is damaging. Um, and, and, and the reason why the University of Michigan um, settlement is I think quite important is because it, because it was reached as a part of a legal settlement. And, you know, so there was a class action lawsuit and, um, and this is a new remedy um, or it's the first time to my knowledge that such a structure has been put in place as a part of a legal settlement. So my hope is that, you know, future legal settlements of this kind, um, that, that survivors in particular and plaintiffs in these cases can look to this as a potential remedy, new remedy that they can advance in their lawsuits. Um, and you know, get some get some positive change in the future. Many plaintiffs in these cases want to influence what the institution does moving forward. Yes, they want compensation for the the harm that they experienced, but they're also very invested in getting the institution to not harm other people going forward. And so this is, you know, a, a way to compel institutions to undertake a what, what has really become a best practice. Um, a, another way to get institutions to, to adopt a CCRT is um, by getting them to apply for and hopefully get a uh, grant from the Office on Violence Against Women in the US Department of Justice, which will not give a campus a red cent without them having a CCRT. Um, and, and that in and of itself is just a, a, a huge indication of how important and effective um, this particular mechanism and practice is. Um, so, Thanks. I'll leave it there, but I'm yeah. happy to talk to anyone who wants to contact me um, about, you know, CCRTs. I, I can get into unbelievably nerdy, weedy places um, <laughs> on the topic. Thanks so much, Nancy. Uh, it just so ties nicely to the years of work I've done with teams. Um, we have other colleagues at GRW who have worked with uh, CCRs for years as well. And I just to, to wrap that portion, what's so, uh, what gives that so much potential, a any group can miss the boat, but what gives it such potential, I think is what Sage was speaking to. If, if you're only in the Dean of Students office and primarily concerned about the adjudicatory process and only focused on that, you may miss some of all these ripple effects that, that um, students are dealing with. And the idea of a CCRT both to think about the impacts of the very process you have, but also just what survivors need in a much broader sense is, is, is there. Um, and then getting into, you know, having people figure out how the work is organized and how it could be done better. So um, we're gonna need to, I just thank you all. Uh, we've covered a lot of territory and you've all spoken um, to some really, really important themes. Um, I don't know if you saw a question for you, Kira, about 
about how you guarded your mental health during that, feel free to answer that in the chat because we need to uh, wrap up at this time, but I thank all our participants as well. Um, I'm gonna turn it back to you, Pat, to, to wrap us up. And um, again, my deep, deep thanks for the panel today, but more importantly for all the work that you all have done um, uh, to bring us to this moment and to, to work towards ending um, gender-based violence on campus and around the world. Thanks, Pat. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I know we didn't have time to get to a lot of the really excellent questions that we had uh, that really focused on ultimately further engagement, engagement with men, engagement with institutions and in our communities. So I'm hopeful that this is not uh, the last uh, conversation that our participants uh, will be able to have on this particular topic. So thank you again to the guests uh, for talking to us today and for the people who have been in attendance. I wanna thank you as well. I'd also like to thank my colleague, uh, Sophia Morissette for ensuring this conversation went smoothly on the technological side. We've also included links in the chat for you to learn more. And if you would like to support Global Rights for Women, your contribution goes to supporting the work of advocates like these, centering survivor voices as the means to achieving systemic change. You will also receive an email in the next few days with uh, resources as well as a link to the recording. And once again, thank you all so much for being here. And it was really an honor to share the space with you all today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Valiant Voices. We hope you were able to take away something meaningful from our conversation. If you'd like to learn more about our organization, Global Rights for Women, and how you can be part of the movement to end violence against women and girls, please visit our website, globalrightsforwomen.org. And thank you.